We talking rom-com, we talking action, we talking drama and movie classics. Whatever you want, yo, we have it. Cause we talking movies on a podcast. So I married a film critic. So I married a film critic. So I married a film critic. Hey honey, I just wanna so talk I about the movie like casually. Critic. You don't have to so bring up married- the cinematography honestly let's just talk about like how the characters were fun married a film critic so i married a film critic so I welcome a- to so i married a film critic i'm your co-host julia and this is barry hello everyone welcome to the zone yes we are doing twilight zone the movie from 1983 now how much of a twilight zone fan are you julia have you ever seen an episode of The Twilight Zone? How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. Because I, I want to. I'm going to pull rank right now. I so in 2007, I went to the Twilight Zone convention in Hackensack, New Jersey. That's I'm a huge, huge Twilight Zone fan. Um, it's not because of this movie. It's because of the series. As a kid, um, obviously, I mean, I was born after this. This show was on originally, but. As a child, I remember my father, um, you know, he had his big uh, tape collection, videotape collection in his office, and I'd wanted to see this movie. And the memory I have of this film, the first time I was even aware of it, I was way too young. I must have been like, I don't know, six, seven years old. And it just happened to be on HBO, and my dear friend Stephen White and my mom and I happened upon it. So we're watching, I believe, the third segment, which we'll talk about. And as soon as the third segment ends, and I thought it was pretty cool being a little kid, suddenly we have a shot of an airplane. And my mom goes, no, 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 no. She turns off the TV and she turns to Steven, who is not only my friend, but also kind of kind of my surrogate older brother. She said, don't tell Barry what happens. You cannot tell Barry about that part of the movie. So for years, I didn't know what that was about. <laughs> and I kind of heard, I'd heard a few things. So I went to my dad's tape room. Like, I bet he has that Twilight Zone, the movie. So I get to finally see this thing. What he had was a Twilight Zone marathon. And I popped that in and I watched that. And it had an episode from the original series called Eye of the Beholder. And the twist of that is so incredible. Even though the episode's in black and white, I'd never seen anything like it. And it really introduced me to I think that was the first one I saw. Yeah? Yeah. You remember the one? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's incredible. And then after that, I watched Time Enough at Last with Burgess Meredith, who narrates Twilight Zone, the movie. It just, it was, it was just like, more please. And I just, I became so addicted. I I found every video cassette I could whenever the marathon would happen on uh, New Year's Eve, whether it was USA Network or the Sci-Fi Channel, I would always watch it. So Twilight Zone, I mean, I, I think it's, for me, it's like the greatest. It's the greatest television series ever. And Rod Serling is just one of our greatest writers. He obviously had a huge impact on television. So, yeah, coming on, you know, looking at this movie, this film is a very different thing. Um, it's, you know, it's a very, it's very much an 80s movie. It's, it's very contemporary in some ways. Um, there are things about this movie I love. There's things about this movie I don't love. But I, I'm fascinated by this movie for, for a lot of reasons. I used to teach a class at uh, University of Colorado Springs called Hollywood History. And whenever I'd get to the 80s, this was always the 80s movie I'd show because it is kind of a prototypical 80s summer movie. It was an early example of a film you know, based on a very popular television series. And it's also an example of Steven Spielberg um, not performing on top of his game, in my opinion. And the film has this really, really noteworthy history, which we'll get into. But uh, yeah, so this is your first time ever seeing it the whole way through? Or you, you seem to remember. No, I've never seen it. I Oh, okay. 
I think I did see you had the, a bit the, of deja vu. I had a little point. bit of deja vu on the third one, yeah. and I wonder if you had just shown it to me kind of as a standalone. I don't think so. I really, I think I would have shown you the entire movie. Mm, I don't <laughs> really. You no. think I showed you like one part? Or it's the Does only that part sound I like remember. Me? No, it doesn't. You're right. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I have seen that. I just literally blocked it out. Because I do know there are a couple of times, because yeah, the thing that you and I have done throughout a marriage is you'd like, pick a movie. So I'll come to you with like a stack of three or four DVDs. And you'll be like, <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, that one. So like, I think Twilight Zone is probably like in that stack at like five times over the past 20 years. Yeah, and always, I always like, rejected no, it. No, definitely not. <laughs> Well, I didn't even really want to watch it last night, but... It's 40 years old now, which is one of the reasons I want to watch it, I want to write about it, and, and it's been a couple of years since I've seen it, although I, I know it very well. I'm probably a little overly familiar with the movie. I used to watch it every year when I was teaching my college class, but um, anyway, let's get into it. All right. Let's go. Hey, you stole my line. Just kidding. <laughs> oh, sorry. Let's get into it. <laughs> Okay, so we open up with uh, Dan Aykroyd and Albert Brooks driving late at night. And I think this is the prologue to the movie. It's not that long. What do you think? Ten minutes? Well, I mean, it's definitely long if you're walking in late to this movie because there's no opening credits. The movie just starts and it's them. Yeah, just like singing along to Credence Clearwater. Revival. Yeah, Yeah. I love it so much because... If you're walking into this movie late, and, and if this was the way movies were back in the 80s like it is now, where there's like 20 minutes of previews, you're probably sitting there going like, hey, is this the Twilight Zone movie? Are we in the right theater? What is this? <laughs> exactly. So they're just like singing along and, you know, kind of for a long time. And they're just kind of driving in the middle of nowhere. I'm always intrigued by this because I, I love this part of the movie so much. And I'm wondering, like, are they friends? Was Dan Aykroyd a hitchhiker that Albert Brooks picked up? Is yes, this like a work? Exactly. Like, how, yeah, we don't really know. And, the, and I love that we don't know. Because on the one hand, they're comfortable with each other, but they're still, they don't really know each other that well. So I'm always kind of leaning into that, like, like is, yeah, like is this like a, you know, like a road trip situation, like a work friend, like what's what's the scenario here? Um, but yeah, it's it's it happens very quickly and it's really funny. I got to say, when Albert Brooks is singing badly to Creedence Clearwater Revival, that's exactly the way I sing when no one else is around and I'm driving and I'm blasting the radio. <laughs> That's how we all sing when nobody's around. I'm like, oh, man, I'm there, man. Yeah, like singing badly and adding lyrics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Guilty as charged. <laughs> so at one point, the tape player, you guys remember tape players, um, eats the tape. And he's there like, oh, man, now what are we going to do for entertainment? This is always terrible. And yeah, because you got you to gotta pull the actual physical tape out of the – oh, it's just it's – it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Albert Brooks says you want to see something scary. And then he turns off his headlights and starts driving just in the dark. And he's like just saying crazy stuff like, oh, who could be ahead of us? Oh, I don't know. You know, oh, maybe there's some ducks. Like, I don't even know what he's saying. There could be nuns out there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> and, Dan, and by the way, I wonder how much of this is improvised. It doesn't, oh, oh, it doesn't bet, feel scripted. I bet most of it was improvised because he's like... He's just saying crazy stuff. And I got to say, like this, the the looseness of it, the you know, because because it visually it does it is kind of sinister, but 
because of the lightweight tone that the actors are playing, it is reminiscent of the beginning of an American werewolf in London. It really is like with Griffin Dunn and David Naughton wandering through the wilderness. I, I love that, that the film has that kind of tonal connection. Anyway, please continue. That's okay. Dan Aykroyd, he's like, I don't like this game. So then they, they play a game where they hum like TV openers. <laughs> All right. And at one point, they do like the Twilight Zone theme. Theme, yeah. Which is cool. It's like, oh, does this movie exist in a world where Twilight Zone's a TV show? That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And so then they start talking about like their favorite Twilight Zone episodes. Very, yeah. very meta at this point. Exactly. Yeah. They're talking about uh, an episode I love called The After Hours. They discuss time enough at last with Burgess Meredith. Yeah. They're just kind of going through and then they, they have an argument over like, no, that's a zone. No, that's the Outer Limits. No, that's a zone. Yeah. Like, these guys are dorks. I love them. <laughs> I would totally love to be in the back seat with these guys. And then uh, Dan Aykroyd, he's like, pull over um, so I can show you something scary. And at this point, I'm like... Okay. Albert Brooks, don't do it. Like, don't pull over so he can show you something scary. Like, you really thought, like, you really saw something scary coming? No. Because the first time I saw it, I'm okay. like, oh, he's going to, like, armpit fart or he's uh, going to, like. <laughs> no, I thought. He's going to turn his eyelids inside out like my brother. <laughs> <laughs> it's honestly what I thought was going to happen. No, I just thought, like, if I was on a road trip with somebody, I'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not pulling over. I'm we, not pulling we, over for Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, I'm not pulling over. Like, we got we have places to go, people to see. Like, we have to get to our next crappy motel. I don't know. But he does. He does. Pulls over. And then what happens, Jules? And then Dan Aykroyd turns into a monster. Like, this crazy green, like, gremlin Is thing. it green or blue? Oh, I think it's a blue. I think yeah. the time, you know, and, I, and I, I seriously love this opening so much. I think the timing of it is a little off because I think we hear it before we see it. And I think it would have been scarier if suddenly it's just because like it's, it's weird because Aykroyd, his hair changes white too. So it's like, was he wearing like a human mask? Like what's the... 
Oh, like what's the mechanism that he's turning into yeah, this thing? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's so it's really silly. Like it's it's gross, but it's you kind of laugh because it yeah. is so so outrageous. But yeah. I mean, it's it's startling and it is kind kind of violent. Kind of, but it's not gory. It's just violent. Yeah. Does, and then does he doesn't? Does well, he... we hear him go ah, and then oh. the camera pans up and we hear <laughs> new, 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 new. <laughs> yeah. So he... and then Burgess <laughs> Meredith is is doing the narration instead of Rod Sterling. Right. Right. So. <laughs> Okay, so then you were like, yeah, it's four movies in one. And I thought that was the first movie. But no, that's just the opener. And you're like, oh, man, I got four to go. Oh. <laughs> okay. You're like, you're like erasing the check mark on your on your list. Like, <laughs> that was a prologue. Oh, come on. And I'm like, oh, four more of these. No, just kidding. It was good. Um, Okay, so the first movie is called Time Out, and our character Bill is going to dinner with some friends. Bill is played by the late, great Vic Morrow. So he kind of goes into this like restaurant, bar, diner, late night place that he hangs out with his friends, and he's telling his friends that another guy got a promotion over him, and he's completely anti-Semitic. He's For starters. Just, like, oh, man. It is outrageous what he says. And he says, like, a Jew got this job over me. You, and... you don't need to quote it. Good. Well, <laughs> no, I'm not going to quote it verbatim, <laughs> but like. That's like kind of how it starts off. He makes Archie Bunker seem yeah. like conservative. I mean, yeah, the stuff he says is pretty outrageous. It, no, even oh, even by today's I mean, I today's think, standards, it's it's way f- far over the top. But I mean, even for like 1983, I mean, it's pretty. Oh, I mean, it's ugly stuff. It's like I, I've never heard anybody in real life say the stuff that this guy is saying. I mean, all the things he says, just, I mean, it's just like a cascade of super racism. Yeah, I'm really, I'm kind of happy we don't know anybody who's oh, ever said anything oh, like this, no. let alone at a restaurant. I mean, I don't know anybody, but I've never even overheard anybody. It's, it's talk, yeah, it's yeah. crazy. I mean, you know, and, 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 you know, obviously racism is still a problem. Obviously, there are people, I but, suppose there are people like but this. But I mean, he's racist against black people, he's racist against everybody. Vietnamese people. I mean, he's like very specific, though, about... Who he's racist towards. And, you know, and, and the film doesn't excuse him. But I, I got to say, like, Morrow is playing it as a... This is a very sad guy. This is somebody who is broken. He is a veteran. He right. is, you know, apparently he has no one. He's lost a promotion at work. And his idiotic way of adjusting to that is is to lean into bigotry. Right. I'm not, again, I'm not excusing that. Because the job but... was going to give him like 6000 more. I really needed that money. Right. Okay. But he says like, I'm an American. Doesn't that mean anything anymore? Yeah, that's a, that's a like, key wow. line, key loaded line. Yeah. There's aspects of this stuff today where you go, okay. Um, no, he's just a terrible person. But yes. Um, yes, he is. Then, I mean, people overhear him and they're like, hey, dude, like, tone it down. Like, we're sitting right here. We can hear you, you know? It, the, the character has no restraint, but I got to say, John Landis wrote this and uh, directed it as well. He also directed the prologue. And uh, to Landis's credit... Morrow's character is the thing that's over the top in the scene. Like he shows restraint when he shows the other characters. It doesn't, you know, the scene like it doesn't lead to a fist fight. It's just that it's everybody in this restaurant overhearing this is exactly feeling the way we are. We are uncomfortable. Oh yeah. This is, you know, such <laughs> this is such an awful thing to witness, let alone have be forced to listen to. Right. I yeah. wonder how the actor felt like saying all this garbage. Like Vic Morrow? Yeah. Did uh, he ever talk about it? Yeah, reportedly, I mean, he really thought this was a fantastic role, and he's right. It's a good role. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a you know the character. There's a lot to play, 
And um, yeah, apparently he was really excited about it. Um, all, all reports leading yeah. up to it. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so he, our, our character, <laughs> our racist character, Bill here, walks out of the restaurant and is somehow magically in Nazi Germany. Yeah. And he's, he's on the street. There's, you know, swastikas around and, and three Nazis come up to him and they're just speaking in German and there's not even any subtitles. Like we don't even really know. Which what is what I love. I, the great, great choice. I think yeah. we're, you know, we're just as confused. We're, as he is. we're not adjusting to this any better than he is. Mm-hmm. It's very abrupt. It's suddenly he's in a completely different world. Um, uh, there's there's not enough good to be said about Jerry Goldsmith's score. The score is very it's one of those Jerry Goldsmith scores that's both orchestral and electronic. And at this point, Goldsmith has this really eerie electronic hum going through the scene. It's very unsettling. Um, so you're feeling like the discombobulation that Bill is. And I love that the the Nazis come up to him. They they see his Bloomingdale's card. They are not impressed. <laughs> yeah, they look through his wallet and they're kind of like, "What's this?" I mean. Yeah, he's like, it's my credit card, my driver's license. I mean, they... they and and again, to the film's credit, none of this is played for laughs. I mean, this is no. John Landis. You know, like, you, you know, he figured, you know, be like the Nazis, like, oh, you shop at Bloomingdale's. <laughs> oh, <laughs> pennies is far superior. No, none of that. No, like, it's it's like, we're meant to be afraid. And I don't know, I, I, I find it effective. Okay, so the, he, um, he kind of gets away from them and escapes, but they, he gets shot in the arm. And so then he goes into to a building, into this random lady's apartment and asks for help. She just like, open, she goes to her open window and just like calls down in French to the Nazis like, hey, he's up here. And he's like, what are you doing? So he escapes um, out her window and he gets shot at i did kind of think this part was a little bit meant to be humorous where he's like standing outside on the building between these two windows and the nazis are like they're making a game of they're it. making a game of it where they're like shooting at him but not hitting him and they're just kind of laughing and you know part of you is kind of like oh, maybe they should just kill this guy because <laughs> he's terrible <laughs> Okay, so he gets shot at, falls off the building, and when he stands up, he's like at a KKK burning where these KKK members are... They think he's black. Yeah, they think he's black, um, but there's like a burning cross. They're all dressed in their crazy outfits. Yeah, it's, and, it's a murderous situation. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's not pageantry. And it's, he's like yeah. yelling that he's like, I'm white, but they can't see that. Yeah. So they try to hang him and he escapes. He ends up like going into a lake and they're shooting at him. He goes underwater and then it kind of cuts. He comes up and now he is in Vietnam. He's getting shot at and he... He's shot at by American soldiers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He sees some Americans and he's like, hey, you know, help me. And they just like shoot at him. Um, he gets exploded back to Nazi Germany. Yeah, that's a good... I mean, yeah, a grenade knocks him into another time yeah. zone. Yeah, yeah. so he's back in Germany. He gets shot in the leg. They, he, they put a yellow star on him, and they're, like, dragging him, and they put him on a train. And, you know, he looks up, and he can see all the other people on the train. And then this part is really sad, where he's, like, looking out through the slots of the train and he can see the restaurant where his friends are leaving and he's yelling at them, but they can't see him. Yeah. He literally is in another dimension. Mm-hmm. 
and they're just <clears throat> kind of like chatting and and then the train obviously taking them to a concentration camp and he's off to basically his death and that's how that segment ends yeah yeah it's, yeah. it's a very eerie spooky ending it is yeah yeah i was like wow maybe they should play this episode for like really racist people well um it always ended the way it ended it was supposed to have a different middle and I'll talk a little bit about that. Mm. And I won't, I won't belabor this, um, but I, it deserves mentioning. It'd be kind of weird if not to mention this. So originally what happened was there was, it used to be much more frenetic when he's like bouncing between all these different time zones. There is this one really cool shot. It goes by so fast where Bill runs in down a corner. The Nazis are chasing after him. And very quickly you see this glowing neon sign from the restaurant. So it's like there's a lot of overlap between the different time periods. Was he supposed to go... To the different time periods, like, more than he did? Yes. Oh, okay. And at one point, uh, the scene that's not in the movie, there was a scene where he is basically finds himself in this hut in Vietnam. There's these two Vietnamese Vietnamese children, <clears throat> and he decides to save them. It's his moment of catharsis. And he basically takes the two kids, one, one, um, a boy and a girl in his arm, runs across a lake... Um, a river, excuse me, a river, a river, um, as a as a GI helicopter um, fires down on him, and then a hut explodes. This big scene where he basically saves the kids. But then apparently, what would happen was he gets uh, he comes back to a different time with the kids, Nazi Germany, and apparently the Nazis take the kids away from him. And then it's right back to where we see where he's there with the Nazis, uh. and they put the star on him, and that's how it ends. Um, in uh, in in the summer of '82, when they shot this sequence, um, to be a, a, as quick about it as possible and 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 be as tasteful as I can about it, um, the uh, explosions caused the helicopter to crash into Vic Morrow and the two children in that scene when they were filming it. Um, a trial went on for years after the Wait, film. It crashed into Bill, the, the actor. Vic Morrow, Renee Chen, and Micah Denley. Yeah. Did they die? Yes. So they shot this scene and they had already... This was like the last scene they were shooting? Yeah. It's not in the film, but the, the footage exists. So they had already shot the ending before? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They shot it out of sequence. Oh, my... I didn't know. He he died during yes. this? this oh, is my his, gosh. Yeah, this is his last film. Wow. And um, Well, now I feel bad about saying he should have died by the Nazis because he like actually... We're talking about a character. No, I know. You know it, no, we're talking about a character. No, it, it's, you know, and it's one of these... It's the thing that makes the movie notorious and infamous and understandably audiences in 1983 struggled with being able to see anything past the tragedy when this film came out. Because the trial went on for years and Landis continued to direct while the trial went on. Like he directed Three Amigos and, and I believe he was working on Coming to America. He directed the Michael Jackson thriller video all while he was on trial because, you know, he was the director of the film. Apparently, you know, there, there's... There's two books about it that I've read. One's called Outrageous Conduct. The other one's called Special Effects. One is very even-handed. The other one's very much out for out for Landis. Um, and I've read the trial transcripts um, word for word, which also is out there. It's fascinating. There's all sorts of different opinions about it. It's still a very controversial case. My takeaway from it for what it's worth, and it's not worth much, but um, apparently they did a test round 
where they shot off some explosions and pyrotechnics and the helicopter even then kind of flinched and you know and apparently Landis famous famously said he denied saying it he said uh you ain't seen nothing yet um meaning that when they finally actually shoot it it was they were going to make the pyrotechnics even bigger and then the thing that's really really hard to forgive and this is something that's that would that came out in the trial and Landis admitted to it the two children were hired illegally They weren't supposed to be there. The parents were hired under the table. That way they could have the kids there late at night. So it was one of these things that it's, you know, not only is what happened so gruesome and horrible, but those kids should not have been there in the first place. Um, It's it's ugly. It's awful. um, And it continues to be this. I mean, you know, it, it, it. Changed a lot of things. The trial, like I said, like the trial. I mean, the movie came out in '83. The trial went, I believe, until 1987. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So that, what was the conclusion of the trial? Uh, the, the, Landis got off. Um, yeah, I, I think everybody was acquitted. Just like oh, it big sh- mistake. Basically, um, they they chalked it up to a technical ass technical thing with the helicopter. Mm. Um, but you know. To say the least, I mean, the the explosions, the pyrotechnics, I mean, even the footage, not that I recommend anybody look at the footage, but it's out there. And you look at the size of the thing, of course, the helicopter was knocked off its its axis because it's... Because of the explosions. Yeah, it was yeah. so extreme. And, you know, Moro was holding on to these two actors and he's trying to get across this body of water and there's a huge helicopter above him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to say, I mean, it changed, it changed a lot of stunt laws, although not enough. And obviously, I mean, you know, right now as we record this, we're in the midst of the Alec Baldwin thing, the rush shooting. So unfortunately these things do happen still. Yeah. Um, this is not, you know, and then of course in my teen years, um, you know, we lost Brandon Lee because of a similar thing with the, with the rush shooting when they were making the crow. So yeah, it's, these things are just terrible. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I know apparently Steven Spielberg, a, f- a few things. You know, again, this is like, it's a lot of hearsay. The only thing Spielberg has ever officially said about Twilight Zone, the movie, was that no film is worth dying for. He's correct. Mm-hmm. And apparently his friendship, and apparently it was a real friendship he had with John Landis. Apparently he completely distanced himself from Landis after this. Um, Landis is still kind of a divisive figure because of this. And um, there were many, and apparently Spielberg was among them who believed that the film should never be released. Um, Interesting. And then it did come out a year later. So anyway, yeah, so this is a good time to talk about Spielberg's contribution to the film because originally the Spielberg contribution was a dark entry. Originally, Spielberg was going to remake an episode from the series called The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street about what happens when a neighborhood becomes aware of the end of the world and this family has a basement where a few of the neighbors can hide, but all the neighbors want in. So it becomes the neighbors going at war with each other. It's very dark. It's it's still real riveting. It's fantastic. And apparently after the tragedy, Spielberg wanted nothing to do with dark material. So mm-hmm. it was decided like he's going to do this really light episode. And by the way, I don't think Kick the Can was ever one of the great Twilight Zone episodes. He shot it in six days. And um, what we have, I think, kind of speaks for itself. <laughs> so the second part, the second movie in this film is called Kick the Can. And um, Scatman Crothers. I actually really liked this part of the movie. Oh, boy. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is sweet. Like, it was kind of like a nice little break after you have like weird you know monster guy on the road and then mr racist and then (laughs) okay now we get a little break and then we go back to like very strange and then freaky you know what i mean 
So I don't know. I thought it was like a nice little respite. But um, And when I've shown this to my film classes, I remember I have had students say it was their favorite part of the movie for that reason. They don't like how dark the rest of the film is, but they like how light and cute this is. Yeah, exactly. You're just, you like dark things. I like dark things, but uh, I mean, this is ridiculous. <laughs> this sequence is so clumsy. Like it... Look, the fact that it was shot in six days, it shows. It's really clumsy. The staging of it, the timing of it. Okay, well, let's talk about it because it's like, it takes place at an old folks home. Sunnyvale. Sunnyvale. And there's just like a doctor lecturing, lecturing the elderly at this home. And, um, oh no, sorry. I'm getting so confused. That's okay. Mr. Bloom is Scatman Crowther's character and a bunch of... Elderly folk are listening to this, you know, this lecture about hygiene and yes. health and you yes. can still enjoy your sex life, which is weird for a segment that's very cutesy wootsy, but whatever. Yeah. And then you see like a man, he takes his suitcases out, you know, and he's like wants to go home with his son and his family for the weekend. And they're like, he's like, sorry, dad, maybe next weekend. So it's just like, okay, you know, like we're kind of just like now we're immersed in this old folk home, old folks home world. Hmm. Yeah. So that guy comes back inside and, you know, all the old people are hanging out together. And uh, there's Mr. Bloom, who's Gatman Carruthers. From The Shining, of course. Yes. Um, and a lot of other great films. Well, the, all, the, all the old people are just talking about, like, what, all the things they can't do anymore. Right. Yeah. And he suggests that they play Kick the Can at midnight. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Because they... I don't know. They're talking about like, oh, I, you know, one of them, like, I wish I could dance still. You know, they, I mean, I don't know. Like, we're in our 40s. Like, these people are in their, like, 80s. Like, we don't know what it's going to be like. So, you think when I'm in my 80s, there's going to be this magical man that's going to come to the old folks' home and be like, <laughs> I got, hey, you remember when we used to play ColecoVision? I have ColecoVision here. We're going to want to play some uh, Pigs in Space and some Centipede. But, oh, yes. Oh, that was the days. Oh. <laughs> hey, if some magic man came to your old folks' home with a Centipede, like, video game, you'd be stoked. They wheeled in, like, this big full-on arcade. Sure. But then there's <laughs> problems with that. And let's... Yeah. So, all right. So, he promises okay. these old folks, like, come play kick the can. One of one of them is very skeptical, but they all agree to they it. They all go down... Yeah. They all go outside at midnight <clears throat> and they play kick the can. And then they all turn into children. And I was like, oh, that's so cute. Yeah. And pointless because they go back to being old moments later. Well, okay. And they all reject because they, for some reason. Okay, they, they don't want to stay as children, why? but they because they why? because then they they were saying, "Oh, I would have to like redo my life all over again and I they don't know if it would be the same and they don't Of want, course it wouldn't. Who cares? They don't want to You have a second chance. But they don't want to lose their memories. They're like they're like immortal. They're like the Highlander. <laughs> This whole crap about fresh young minds. What a load of crap. No, man. And they, they go back to being old, but they have fresh yeah, young minds. Yeah, they have fresh young minds. They have a new lease on life because they still, a lot of them were like still physically capable of doing stuff. They just weren't doing anything. What a bunch of nonsense. If this magical <laughs> man was really that nice, he would let them stay as children. It and was help their them. choice. He, I, he, cause one but of them did. So contr- yeah. What the girl loses her wedding ring. It's ridiculous. Like, no, like, look, 
you're stuck at this retirement home. It's kind okay. of a grim, dusty place. One of them decides place. to stay and become a lost boy. One of them, yeah. And yeah. we get Peter, you get Spielberg going like, coming soon, hook, <laughs> at a theater near you. <laughs> Okay, so they they do they go back to bed as children. They wake up old, and they have a new lease on life. And then, then you find but out one of them, one of them decides to stay a kids, and it stays a kid. And he runs out the window and goes, "Tally ho!" And he seemingly flies away like Peter Pan. Yeah, I do wonder, like, okay, well, what's going to happen to this one kid? Like, he can't. His parents are dead. He's an old man. It's 1983. I mean, he can gonna... he just go to high school? <laughs> He's not going to fit in. <laughs> he... Hey, man, you played your ColecoVision? Ooh. Oh, it's a wing ding doodle of a day. How are you guys doing? Like, like, do his kids become his parents? Do you guys like the Jitterbug? <laughs> Boy, George, who's that? Do you guys like Glenn Miller? <laughs> okay, so then you find out... Eddie that... Murphy, have you guys ever heard of the Three Stooges of the Marx Brothers? That Mr. Bloom... Then goes to like another Ugh. old folks home, and they're like, "Oh, we've been expecting you." And I'm like, "This guy just goes around." Keep this guy away. And by the way, Scatman Crothers, wonderful, charming, but like this material is insufferable. I mean, if we want to go there, I mean, he's basically playing Uncle Remus. So of course, this segment of the movie is not going to hold up. But you know what? Nothing about this holds up. It's got the it's got the Spielbergian glow. It looks like a parody of a Spielberg movie. It's weird because he had just done E.T. and E.T. There's such a precision to the imagery, and here it's like it's really clumsy and stagey. There's that moment where Scatman Crow, this is Mr. Bloom, like leans right into that camera, and goes, "I think he's gonna get." Like it's so like ah sugary and gross. <laughs> Sugary and this gross. is like if if Cocoon was a two minute Hallmark commercial, it would be this. Because <sighs> Cocoon is gritty. This is this is dumb. Okay, and the, by the way, the little kids, they're they're adorable. Okay, they're really adorable, but they're playing old. They're not playing characters. They're playing old people caricatures. That's true. It's really embarrassing. Like these are not great child performances. Great child performers. But because the material is so hackneyed, these kids are like saying the most, I remember when my uncle died, like <laughs> coming from like an eight year old who looks like she's out of a McDonald's commercial. Like this is, this is, this is so bad. Oh. I hate this. And you know, it's interesting to watch because like, wow, like, you know, Spielberg, this is, I mean, in this decade in particular, I mean, he's just knocking them out of the park every time, you know, blockbusters left and right and deservedly so. I mean, he's a fantastic filmmaker. He is. But this sucks. I hate this part of the movie so much. I do wish it were darker. I do wish Spielberg <clears throat> had made uh, uh, The Monsters Were Due on Maple Street. Because I'll say it again. Kick the Can is not one of the great Twilight Zone episodes. It isn't. It, it's weird to me that he even gravitated towards this. What I would have preferred, if, if you're going to do uh, an episode that's sentimental and sweet and moving, there's an episode of Twilight Zone. It's one of my absolute favorites. It's called Walking Distance. It's about a man who goes to his old town. Suddenly, he realizes that it's back to the days of his youth, and he encounters himself as a young boy. It's so beautiful and moving. Why didn't Spielberg do that instead of this nonsense of like, kick the can? <laughs> yeah. Did you ever kick the can? No. Oh, okay. No, I I, I, I didn't like run, you know, with the tire and a stick through it either. You know, I 
<laughs> I didn't play marbles. No, this is like this is like Great Depression games. No, no, I played hopscotch. I did jump rope, and then I had ColecoVision. And I never left the house, and I had cable TV, so I never left my playroom. That's hilarious. No, okay. no, I mean, no. Did you ever play Kick the no, Can? No, that's why I'm wondering. No. No, this is... Maybe that was like something like your dad did or his dad. I don't know. It's like playing jacks or like or like P knuckle or <laughs> okay, well, I tiddlywinks. Did, I did. T- who wants to play tiddlywigs? Oh my gosh. Okay, let's move on to the third one. Yay! <laughs> and this is where the film gets good. And man, like, that's the problem with these anthology movies when you have, like, you know, it's like different movies within one movie. There's always at least one that drags it down. I, I'm not in love with the with the timeout segment, but God, kick the can, man. But then, like, the movie just kind of course corrects itself. Like, everything about it just gets better. The the Jerry Goldsmith score gets out of the gooey, oogie parody of, of John Williams. And we've got Kathleen Quinlan uh, driving... And uh, she goes to this little diner. And when you know, the diner is run by Dick Miller, one of our great character actors. And he's naming all these towns that she's passing. And he's making – he's just like really just, just dropping all these Twilight Zone references. All these towns are towns that are famous from the sh- series. Oh. And she sees a little boy playing an arcade game. Awesome. An arcade game. And um, yeah, it's uh, – I, I love these introduction. The, the introduction. She's basically she's she's a school teacher. She's on a road trip by herself, and the little boy is harassed in the diner. He runs outside. She's backing up. She doesn't realize that she basically hits him with her car as right. he's, while he's on his bike. Bends his bike. Yeah, like messes it up, and then he's like, "Well, maybe you can give me a ride home." So she's like, "Okay." So did you notice the name of the restaurant though? What sandwiches and seafood. Ew. Does that sound right to you? No, that seems weird. Are you Sam- sure that's the name of the restaurant and it not said, just like... No, it said sandwiches and seafood, which is, again, like, I don't know. I think it should be reversed for one thing. But still, it's like, okay, the sandwiches, we're talking like tuna fish sandwiches? <laughs> and it's a bar. Yeah. It, yeah. It, <laughs> Do people go out to... It's like this town so sad. Like, this is like, like let's go to sandwiches and seafood tonight. <laughs> Just like a generic movie restaurant name, um, but he t- so this little guy tells her tells Helen, yeah, it's my birthday and my family is not even celebrating me today. And you know he seems like a really sweet kid. Yeah, very sweet. Yeah, and so when they get to the house, oh man, this is I had deja vu watching this one because I think I have I had seen this one before. The boy's name is Anthony. Yeah. And they go into Anthony's house and it's like weird because you see his uncle and his sister just like watching some kind of cartoon show in the living room. The sister is played by Yordley Smith, the voice of Bart Simpson. Oh. Yeah. And you could if you if you know to listen for it, you can totally tell. Oh, okay. I didn't know I didn't know to listen for that. And uh the other uncle is played by Kevin McCarthy, who the wonderful actor who uh starred in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He's also in uh a few um a few Joe Dante Joe Dante directed this segment. And uh yeah, he also figures in Joe Dante's inner space. Anyway, yeah, so we meet the kid's parents, his his family rather, and they seem to be pretty nuts. They seem insane and they're like oh you know you you want to stay for dinner yes that's a great idea and um so then 
they tell her, oh, she's like, well, can I go wash my hands? And so they're like, yeah. And so they like take her purse and her sweater and she goes upstairs and they just start rummaging through her stuff like little savages. If you know the twist, the moment always disturbs me a lot because it says a lot about these people who are probably starving or, you know, they have not had an encounter with the outside yeah, world. Yeah, exactly. It's, I don't know, it bothers me. Like, I look at it's, it now, like, it's Because so at first you're unsettling. like, okay, are they trying to steal from her? Like, are they thieves? Like, they just seem, like, completely insane. Yeah, if you, if you know the twist and you rewatch the, these performances, like, it's... It, it it bothers me, frankly. I don't even... I used to find this part of the movie really funny. Now it's like, this is so creepy. Yeah, because then Helen and Anthony are upstairs and I don't know, like there's... The house is really strange and then there's like a room with a girl watching more cartoons and he's like, that's my sister. That's my older sister. And you never... Helen doesn't see her face, but then you see her face and she has no mouth. No mouth. It's like a weird thing from like the Matrix, like when Neo, you know, gets his mouth like closed up. Well, it also presents some questions like how does she eat? Yeah, exactly. How is she alive? How does she brush her teeth? Does she have teeth? Yeah. Because she's, she's, I mean, like the look in her eyes, it's like she's just been staring at this TV for who knows how long. Who knows how long this existence of hers has been. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's deeply disturbing. There's also pictures on the wall of a family, but the, no one has a face. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And then they head back downstairs and the the mom like like sets them all down in this in the living room in front of the TV. And she's like. Wait, I don't I don't remember where dinner is. And Anthony's like, isn't it in the oven? And she's like, oh, you're right. I mean, it's. And then Kevin McCarthy is the uncle tries to make a joke of it. He goes, she never knows. She never remembers. Oh, it's great. Yeah, she it's great. never remembers. Yeah. And so then the mom brings dinner and it's, ew, it's so nasty. It's like a hamburger. With peanut butter. With peanut butter inside. And potato chips. Potato. And like those, you know, those like ice cream swirl cups. It's yeah. like vanilla and like strawberry swirl. It's like, It's yeah. birthday party food. Yeah. And, you know, Helen's like, so, um, Wow is this how you eat all the time? And, and they're like, yeah, this is what Anthony loves. And, and then she's like, Oh, I know why it's your birthday. And then the family is just like horrified. They're like his birthday again, another birthday. <laughs> yes. And then it starts to turn because Anthony in particular is annoyed with his sister and he uses, it seems like a psychic ability to knock the plate off of her lap. And that's, I think, when the teacher, Kathleen Quinlan's character... Is that a, before or after the uncle has to do the, the that's rabbit? That's right before. Oh, okay. Because he, because she's ready to bolt. I mean, they're clingy, they're weird. The kid's fine, but the family's weird. She's ready to bolt, and he's like, no, like, my uncle's going to show you this magic trick. And that's when he puts his uncle in the spot. Um, his uncle stands up. There's this weird spotlight suddenly on him. Yeah. He manages to pull a rabbit out of a hat. But because for whatever reason, and it's probably just because uh, Anthony's emotions are in flux, suddenly the rabbit turns into this, what, this... Like a demon rabbit. Yeah, basically a demon (laughs) rabbit. It's it's so crazy. Yeah. And then, yeah, that goes away. And then before Helen tries to leave, there's a note. 
that she finds in her purse. <laughs> I love that note, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, Anthony is a monster. <laughs> And Anthony's like, who wrote this note? And everyone's like, I, I didn't write it right. And they finally, the family blames. Like, it was Ethel. Yeah. It was Ethel. Yeah, they blame the sister. And she's just like, he is terrible. He's like the worst person. And then you kind of find out none of these people are related to him at all. Well, what, what happens to Ethel? He sends her to cartoon land. Oh, yeah. He sends her into the TV. And so she's she, suddenly in a cartoon where she is devoured um, yeah. by a cartoon character. Yeah. And they're just all basically watching her freak out and die. But yeah, from the from the conversations, from the flurry of things that are said, it's it's clear that, yeah, this, this is not Anthony's family. These are people he's acquired and he yes. will not let them leave. Yes. Well, he probably killed his real family. He might have. He might have well, just. Well, what else would have happened to them? Well, and, and Ethel makes that makes that comment that you wouldn't believe it. You know, so I, I think that is what's suggested. But because we don't know, he might have just transformed them into you cartoons. Know, they may be cartoons. They may be mouthless or eyeless, like the sister. Oh, they're like in other rooms as like prisoners. Yeah, they might be other realms. He might have turned them into the furniture. Who knows? That's true. Yeah. Is really creepy. Yeah. But he, and then at one What's point. the whim of a little boy who has godlike powers? And then at one point, Helen opens the front door and it's like just like a big giant eyeball. eyeball. Yeah. <laughs> so she's Pretty like, cool. I can't leave. Yeah. So what, her and Anthony end up in some kind of alternate like portal universe. It's a, it is double exposed. So you have like two frames happening at the same time. And it's like this, I don't know. I love the timing of it. It's weird and it has like this ghostly feel, you know, it's like this this transparency for both images. And you see how as she talk kind of talks him down. She's a teacher. And he, even though he has these incredible powers, he needs he's a student. He needs to be a student. They need each other. Um She does not need him. He needs her because he is an unruly, undisciplined little child. Yes, but like any teacher will tell you, when you have a student like this, the idea is that you nurture and love them to a point where you can kind of disarm how destructive they are. Okay. I'm not speaking from experience, of course. <laughs> um, so she's trying to manipulate him into behaving. Sure. And and when she's able to reach him, that's when the double exposure stops and the two, and the two images become one, which I really like. He makes a car materialize, which looks strange like a 1980s car commercial. And they start to drive off together and he does his little bits of magic. He's just like, no more of that, please. But then, of course... As they're driving off in the distance, you see these, you see miles and miles of flowers materialize wherever they're driving. Yeah. And it's like, are they even driving in the real world? Yeah. It's a great question. And the other question I ask is like, is this a happy ending? Yeah. Because is she going to end up like, like the others? Yeah. Because you know? she's still his prisoner. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like the ending of let the right one in. It's like, is this an escape or, or, the, or she is doomed as everybody else in that house? Yeah. Is there, can you tame somebody who, you know, is a child? I mean, we don't even know how long Anthony's been a child. Can he grow up? Is puberty going to happen? I don't know. Don't you think that, but. He's a psychopath. Is he? He's a kid. You don't think that kids he's, can be psychopaths? You, I mean, he's like a kid playing with a, you know, magnifying glass melting ants, except on a bigger scale. Yeah, like he realized that he had this power at some point in his life and just went to town. Well, he wants to get whatever he wants. Yeah. But it's, you know, of course, the thing that's so unsettling is that, I mean, 
he's like somebody abusing his pets, you know, like the people that are living in that house. I mean, when they're eating his birthday party food, you get the sense like, man, they must be starving. Who knows? <laughs> who knows the last time they ate? Because they're, they're just like walking on eggshells around this kid. Right. But don't you think, I mean, one of the things I really love about this, it feels like a dark comedy about being a parent. Because these parents, in quotations, what they're trying to do with Anthony is not only they're trying to subdue him, they're also like going out of their way to like be like his friend as opposed to his parents. They're letting him eat whatever he wants, do whatever he wants. Like, haven't we, you know, isn't that a weakness of all parent? It's like, do you discipline the child and you cause the great anger to erupt? Or do you do whatever you can to, to keep them, you know, pacified? Sure. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think and, there's something. I think there's something here. And then they end up running your whole house. Yeah, and that's why you can't let the little Anthony's rule the world, yeah. even when they have the ability to do. Because let's face it, you know, most people would say like, "Oh, my child runs the household," and da da. You know, I've, I've heard that about so many kids. Um, just say my dog runs the household because that's true. Oh yeah, I mean, I just had to. I had to walk my dog before we did this podcast. So yeah, <laughs> no, no question. Charlotte rules this house. <laughs> Okay, but back, you don't think kids can be psychopaths? Where do you think it starts? I, I, I psychopath is strong, and I don't, I don't see Anthony as a psychopath. I see him as a kid. He just, he, he doesn't quite understand what he has. I don't see him as like Damien Thorne in The Omen. What he sent his sister into Cartoon Land so she would die. Uh, is she really dead though? He has like the he has the ability to make things materialize. Didn't and, and he he took his other sister's mouth away and now she's like a you know vegetable. But when he and and uh, the teacher are in limbo, doesn't he make the doesn't he say that he sent everybody back to where they wanted to go? Oh, I don't know. So I think he has. I think he basically has the ability to undo every bad thing that he's ever done. He has complete control over this world. Mm. Yeah. He's still like I wouldn't want to like walk into that crazy cartoon house. I mean, it would be a for one thing. You can only imagine how many times his surrogate, surrogate, his 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 captive parents have like lunged for him. You know, <laughs> seriously, like you do wonder like how many times that has happened. How many times they've been through this? Okay, we got to play act again. We got to be nice, otherwise we know what's going to happen. Um, but again, I think this is kind of a dark commentary about not only how hard it is to raise kids, but also how far we go to like creating perfect appearances. Mm. I think I told you once, like back when you and I didn't have kids and I went to lunch with my dear friends at a pizza place <laughs> and their son, who I think was four or five, it was comical because the two of them were talking to me and their son was just running around this pizza place raising heck. Just like you could hear like silverware dropping, plates being tossed over. And the kids, like, I could see him, like, in my peripheral, like, running around laughing. And one of the parents is like, excuse me. And I would see them running around in the background while I'm talking to one parent. And they would switch off. It's like, this is a farce. I'm like, wow, this is what parenthood is like. And sometimes it is. I mean, okay. So you can't relate to this at all? You've never felt like our daughter is, like, no, she's been like she's pretty well behaved. She's be pretty honest. well behaved, but she's at her moments like, "Can I have another birthday?" I mean, haven't hasn't she oh, ever? You know, I guess of course. But what kid doesn't want like another birthday right after their birthday? They're like, "When's my next birthday?" And you're like, "Um, in a year." It I, just happened. I mean, take away the magic powers. I mean, we have a child who loves birthday party food, loves cartoons, yeah, loves yeah. video games yeah. from the eighties. Well. That's true. And we do have to rein it in. We do have to say like, no, you can't do that. 
all day, every day. No, Anthony, you cannot. <laughs> all right. So that that one was nightmarish, and I, I, I enjoyed it, though. This is Joe Dante. Uh, right after this, he went and made Gremlins, mm-hmm. and then he made movies like The Burbs. Um, and then uh, my favorite, a movie with John Goodman called Matinee. Um, I think Joe Dante is a seriously underrated talent. I love him. Um, he's a very quirky filmmaker. Uh, his movies, he's in love with like 50s monster movies, but he also, he's also a very contemporary filmmaker, very hip. And his movies are super cool. And yeah. I, I love this, love this thing. And it's like, at this point, I'm like, all right, I forgive this movie for the kick the can crap. Like, <laughs> this, this film is really starting to work. And then we move into our next and final segment. Yeah, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. So we have our main leading man, John Lithgow. In an airplane bathroom, freaking out yes. over the turbulence. And you know what I hated about this part is like the like flight attendant is just she's just like knocking on the door like incessantly, like nonstop. Like, lady, leave the guy alone. Like, you don't know what he's doing in there. They're annoyed. He's been in there a while and clearly he's a nervous passenger. I think like we're we're not seeing the beginning of this. Where this is yeah, like, you know, he's true. probably been in and out of that bathroom for a while. Okay. But she's just like nonstop knocking and he finally comes out. They get him seated and he's just like sweating. I mean, the sweat on this man is is outrageous. This is not a top tier airline. This is like Sky West, okay? This is like, you know, one of those mm, Yeah. JetBlue. Okay. Yeah, it's like a jet blue. All right. Okay. Well, what what is also very unrealistic is when they put him, like he's sitting in a seat. He's on the window, and the flight attendant is like standing in front of him. Like, there's no way there's enough room for that. It's a movie. I know, but it's outrageous the amount of legroom this man has. Oh, that's right. You were freaking out about that. <laughs> I'm like. Really? The claustrophobia of this? No? Nothing? The intensity of John Lithgow's performance? You were freaking out like, look at that leg room! <laughs> he can stretch out! <laughs> well, John Lithgow is not a short person. No, no, he's a he's a beast. So yeah, I'm sure, like, the, I gotta mean, find they, some really big seats for this actor. I mean, they just, like, they're like, you know what? We're just gonna make it, like, he's, he's like, in an exit row, not in an exit row. That's how much room he has. Like, twice the amount of room that he should. Yeah, uh, John Lithgow and uh, Harry from Harry and the Hendersons could fit in that seat. It's so yes. spacious. No, agreed, agreed. So, okay, there's some also some really strange, other strange passengers. <laughs> it's a weird flight it, it is. It is. Yeah, you got the little girl. I love this kid. Um, this little girl was in Cloak and Dagger the year afterwards. Um, yeah, she's the one who has a ventriloquist puppet <laughs> it's for some so reason. Weird. She's an unruly little brat, but I, I love I love the performance. Like th- As opposed to Kick the Can... This kid just seems like a really weird, out of control kid, and her mom is asleep, so she just like kind of does whatever she wants. Yeah, and she's kind of like you, sitting in front of the John Lithgow character with this like other like man. There's a big dude sitting right in front of Lithgow, big dude yeah. who initially we're not sure what his deal is. Um, then there's the old folks behind him, and there's the guy. One of my favorite lines in the movie is like, "I think I spilled my drink. I think I spilled my drink." <laughs> You think? <laughs> okay, so John Lithgow is just like looking out the window. Yeah. 
Uh, and he's sitting. It's a stormy night. There's yeah. super turbulence. Yeah. He's incredibly nervous. He just read the cover of a, of a newspaper, which, which talks about an airplane crash. So this poor guy, I mean, he's just like, yeah. his nerves are shattered. He's yeah freaking out. I mean, like lightning is striking. The plane? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, because because the original this is this is another remake of a classic episode. The original episode, same title, Nightmare Twenty Thousand Feet, directed by Richard Donner of all people, and starring William Shatner. Okay, I thought that's what it was, yeah. but he didn't say the same line, did he? Yeah, he does. There's a man uh, on the wing of this plane. Yeah. I thought it was there's a thing, a thing on the wing of the plane. Well, yeah, because of course that's. I mean, Lithgow can't say it the way Shatner does. <laughs> There was somebody out there. You've got to believe me. I saw him green and slimy. Leave the poor man alone. You can only try to help. You've got to use them. It was lightning. At first I thought it was an animal, some kind of bird or something, but it was a man. There was, was flames coming out of the engine, and then a, a flash, and, and then smoke. Maybe it was a technician who was caught in the plane when, when it take, took off. Oh my God, how could he survive out there? The air's too thin, the, the, the blast of the wind. It's, it's so cold. It's impossible, isn't it? Oh my God, I feel so stupid. <laughs> Can you imagine a naked man crawling along the wing of an airplane at 35,000 feet? There's no need to feel embarrassed, Mr. Valentine. Let's try to get some sleep. It's amazing. The mind, how the eyes can make you see something that isn't even there. It's completely freaking out. Look, you're just gonna have to deal with it. It's alright, you don't have to stay with me. I know you have other passengers to attend to. I'm happy to sit with you to the seat. No. It's probably easier for me if I'm alone. Sure? Sure. I'm drowsy already. <laughs> But, by the way, they did do a series together called 30 Rock, mm -hmm. where they actually have an episode where their characters are basically talking about... This episode? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, like, there is a... There's a... Yeah, 30 Rock bridges the two Twilight. It's goofy. I think the, the footage is on uh, YouTube. Yeah. But, yeah, they made a big joke of it. That 30 Rock from the Sun show? Yeah, because uh, uh, William Shatner shows up, and he and John Lithgow have a conversation about the time they took that flight and that weird thing that happened. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. If I remember correctly, yeah. Okay. So he sees some kind of, like, goblin thing. Um, well, it's a gremlin. Gremlin. It's a gremlin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it, <laughs> at first, you're not sure what's happening, but <laughs> it's like... I love that it's dark and murky, and it looks almost like 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 there's a tarp stuck on the wing. It, you initially, it's like what I like. You don't really know what it is because the thing that's so goofy, of course, about the original episode, it looks like a big panda bear with like cracked out eyes. Right. You know, and it's I don't know. I think it's kind of hilarious. Now it, it's it's a cool. It's a great episode. The original it's like, episode in the original, it kind of looks like a Sasquatch, and this one, it looks more like an alien. It's clearly yeah. It's like a guy like in a yeah like in a teddy bear suit that's been like worn too many times. And this yeah, it's 
it's bizarre initially its appearance you, you don't really know what it is it just you can clearly see it looks like something that's alive and moving out there yeah it's cool and at one point it's like ripping like wires well that's out. the funniest part yeah because it's like oh man it, he's so naughty it's like ripping parts of the plant he's, he's throwing so it into the naughty <laughs> oh man like what a, I, I don't know i think that part of it's actually pretty hilarious yeah. this whole this is this whole segment of the movie it's it's george miller the director of the mad max films mm. and by the way george miller like i think he's in his 80s right now he's in the desert filming a new mad max movie with really? Anya taylor joy that guy is badass i mean he just like nothing stops him or slows him down and this segment of the movie it's like poltergeist on a plane even though it's like stuck in a tube it's so thrilling and exciting the, the it's not just the whole movie this part of the movie rather is at the level of Lithgow's performance. It's hysterical. It's like forward momentum, nonstop. The the sound effects are tour de force. I just, I love this part of the movie so much. Well, I love that. So like he tries to go to sleep yeah. and he sees the thing. And that amazing close up. It's like, yeah, like it's a long shot where he closes the, the window because he's already thought he's seen it once. And, you know, and the, the uh, flight attendant talked him down. So he shuts his window and he just closes his eyes and the camera very slowly starts to close up on him. And like anybody, he's wondering, like, is it still out there? Yeah. You know, and then finally when he can't handle anymore and the, the sound of his heartbeat is all over the soundtrack, he opens up the window and it's right there looking at him. It's so cool. Yeah. And then he freaks out freaks and out. The, the flight attendant comes back and and he's like telling her what he saw and she's like not saying anything. And he's like, I, I'm mad. I'm going crazy. And she's like. Just take the volume, dude. Like, just here. I'm not supposed to give passengers drugs, but I'm going to make an exception for you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And at this point, I think this is when... I think that's... This is the first time... Because it happens It happens two or three times where he freaks out and then the pilot comes over to talk to him. Yeah. 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 It's a really good discussion. Really nice. Well played by that actor um, where he has a talk with... The character is, I think, Valentine. That's the name of John Lithgow's character. And he explains to him, like, yeah, we lost we lost one of our engines because lightning struck it, but we've got three more. Right. There's a great possibility it's that not a, There's nothing out there. Yeah. It was the lightning. Yeah. yeah. Um, he tries to... He steals the little girl camera she has a polaroid camera and he tries to take a picture of this thing <laughs> it just ends up being a picture of his reflection yeah, so he's like so funny no. <laughs> <laughs> and then um he steals the gun of the air there's a marshal. scuffle yeah the scuffle of the air marshal yeah the big guy in front of him is an air marshal and yeah he he fights him for his gun shoots the window and the everything in the plane you know it uh decompresses and suddenly there's there's everything's debris flying, flying everywhere. everywhere oh it's so cool the in-flight movie starts to play which i'd be like oh this is great <laughs> and uh yeah so so because of the suction uh lithgow is like halfway outside of the plane at this point which is so crazy he fires some shots at the gremlin which is awesome the gremlin who uh has like crazy long like predator hair in fact it's very predator-esque now that i think about it he runs over to, to Lithgow, I guess, like, turns his gun into a pretzel. We don't quite see it. And he puts his slimy, wet hand on his face. It makes a real, like, a sort of sound. And it, it, it's this great thing where suddenly they realize the plane is about to land. And the gremlin's like, oh, i got to get out of here. So he does this kind of like this. He shakes his finger at him. 
I'm not sure what that implies. Like, like, don't tell anyone, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. But then suddenly he jumps up and it's like, he does like this little swirly fly and then he like vanishes into the clouds. It's the coolest thing. Um, but we cut to Lithgow, an extreme close-up of him looking much better and rested. And he's like, that's how it happened. And I saved the day. And the camera pulls back. We realize he's strapped to a bed that's being put into the back of an ambulance. We see all the members of the flights kind of talking down like what just happened. And, you know, they're trying to figure it out. This is a really nice long shot where we see um, the maintenance people coming to check out the plane. <laughs> and it's just like torn apart. Yeah. And so I was like, what happened up there? And we, and we realized, oh, my gosh, like, you know. He, it's it's the real deal. What what we said was not imagined. Um, yeah, he really did save the day. Although I I think it's pretty explicit though, because I think with the with the TV show episode, the Richard Donner episode, I think we're supposed to have our doubts. And in this case, it's oh. like it's pretty. Yeah, it's, I don't think I don't think we're supposed to doubt. I don't think any of these segments we're supposed to doubt the supernatural elements of any of it. I think it's pretty. Okay, but you're missing the very last part. Where he's, in the, he's in the he's yeah, in the he's in the ambulance, and then you see um, Dan Aykroyd is the ambulance driver, and he puts in his Credence Clearwater Revival tape into the tape deck and drives off. And you're like, well, yes, yeah, the, the closing line. You want to see something really scary? Yeah, yeah. So was he the gremlin on the plane? Oh, that's a cool idea. That's what I was thinking. I mean, it's a different monster. I can vouch for that. I know the creature designs; it's different, but. That's that's fun actually to think of it that way. If if uh, yeah, Aykroyd's character is like this impish creature that just kind of yeah. travels around, and him. and we don't know if he can't like shape shift into other things. What's your superpower? I love to scare people. <laughs> I make them pull over and I scare them. <laughs> I like to tear apart airplanes and. I air. love Halloween and I love to go on planes. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's interesting. No, I had not th- I had not considered that. I like it. Yeah. But it, our movie comes full circle. Yeah. They actually try and, you know, make it more cohesive. Yeah, and apparently, uh, uh, this will be the last thing I say about this, but when they were, you know, kind of reconfiguring the film uh, following the tragedy, you know, and they were uh, trying to figure out what to do, plus the Spielberg segment completely changed. Apparently, the order of the film altered. Um, I heard one version, like, it, it, nobody has really a straight story anymore about what happened. I suspect most people involved in this movie don't even want to talk about it or remember it with a lot of clarity. But apparently, there was an ending where there was one, I heard someone say there was an ending where Vic Morrow survived the Holocaust. And the movie actually ended with his segment, and he hitchhikes, and he's picked up by Dan Aykroyd. I've heard that. Oh, interesting. I've heard that's, but I mean, that's, I don't even know if they shot that, or that was originally scripted, or maybe that was a script before before everything happened. Um, apparently, the order of the segments was switched. Like, originally, Nightmare 20,000 Feet was not the last one. Um yeah, so I mean, apparently there was a lot of shifting. All, what I'm trying to say is the epilogue was shot later. Um, it was never part of the plan, so I guess they got Dan Aykroyd back in there. You know, and it's a very light, it's dark, but lighthearted way to, to end this film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To end a movie about uh, racism and uh, getting old and being a terrible parent and fear of flying. <laughs> so really not your, not your lighthearted summer fair. <laughs> So how many um, stars did you give it? You know, I, I love what all the critics did back in the day, and I'm going to steal it, which is to rate every single segment. Okay. So three stars. Eh, yeah, three stars. Three. So I think that's first. Three stars for the opener. I love the opening of this movie. Two stars for Time Out. Um, as much as I admire Vic Morrow's performance, and I think there's a lot of admirable and, and compelling things about that segment, it's ugly. 
And, you know, had everything been, you know, had the tragedy not happened or if they had decided just to include all the footage they shot, I I still don't, I still don't think it would have worked. I think it would have been even worse. It's, there's... I don't like the idea of catharsis of it like, you know, you got to walk in someone's shoes to understand how wrong racism is. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't I, I don't think the moralizing of it completely works. Um, I'm not, I mean, obviously, it's about empathy and eliminating the sequence where Bill saves the kids. It does. It kind of loses the quality of like the Scrooge thing of like, you know, him, you know, Scrooge, you know, Scrooge is all about him learning to love tiny Tim and we don't have that here. So it's kind of like just a guy who experiences what other people have, have experienced and then it makes him what a better person at the end. Not really. Well, no, I mean, he doesn't, he ends up dying. I mean, he ends up dying, but like, again, I mean, I don't know. I mean, is it, 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 it plays almost more like a revenge fantasy than it is about someone who, who, oh, yeah. you know, discovers empathy or compassion it just i don't know it's it's just it's it's a it's a gauntlet of ugliness Mm -hmm. you know i mean Mm -hmm. you know we're hearing racial slurs nonstop in this thing we're we're you know i mean the part about the nazis is probably the most lighthearted part of that whole segment i mean it's it's, (laughs) i mean it's really ugly so i yeah i don't i don't like it i I admire things about it um but yeah i mean it's obviously the, the haunted part of this movie um so two stars uh, one star for Kick the Can. I hate it, hate it, hate it. Okay. The one part of it I love is where Scatman Crothers at the end is walking away and he's got his stick and he's like improvising a little song. What are you doing sitting around moping? Love that. As he walks away, it's like, oh, I love you, Scatman. Uh, too bad I had to sit through five minutes of torture to get to this little moment. <laughs> and then, yeah, we get to... Um, it's a good uh, life. It's a good life. Yeah, three stars. Wonderful. Uh, wonderful, weird, creepy and unsettling, but great. And then four stars for... Uh, oh, that's your favorite. For, oh, yeah, hands down. I think it's I think it's just so thrilling. I love it. Uh, I think it's one of the un, one of the underappreciated gems of George Miller's amazing career. So I think three stars for the film overall. I think mm-hmm. it all evens out to about three stars for me. Yeah. How about you? That that makes sense. I mean, I would say sure, three stars. Mm, you like Kick the Can. I. It's your favorite one, isn't it? <laughs> you would watch the whole movie again just to watch that one. No, but after like the first two, you love those fresh young minds. Fresh young minds. I mean, after the first, like the opener, and then yeah, super racist guy. It was kind of like, oh okay, this is like, I don't know. I just like enjoyed it. And not saying that your criticism... The day we stop playing is the day we start getting old. <laughs> your criticisms are valid, but... Or that creepy moment where the, the boy is chasing the little girl and the little boy says, AJ, get away from my wife! <laughs> so creepy weird. <laughs> so, yeah. But at, overall, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, the movie is a curiosity item, and I feel like I feel like a lot of contemporary young people are discovering it because they do an internet search and they learn the the terrible backstory of the film, um, which is a whole other thing. I do feel like the movie is en- the movie's probably most enjoyable for people who don't know about any of that stuff. Oh yeah, um, because I yeah. was like, oh, is this the one with the accident? And then you said no. Well, I, I wasn't lying to you. I just I, I what I meant was you don't see any of it in the film. It's right. not like one of those so movies. So I I watched it not thinking that this that it was like a different Twilight Zone movie because I don't know how many Twilight yeah, Zone this movies is the only there one are. So oh, far. okay. Yeah. So I was thinking, oh, maybe that was a different movie. Yeah. Um so yeah, I think if I had known that it may have changed 
my view of that first part, you know, yeah. like it maybe would have been even, even harder to watch than it already was. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, it's, it's already an uncomfortable sequence, but yeah, knowing, yeah. knowing the full story, you do kind of watch it with a sense of dread. You yeah. Do. Yeah. You do. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but the thing that doesn't get noted enough, I, I do think Vic Morrow's performance, even, even though it suffered in editing and whatnot, I think he's quite good, even though the material itself is very hard to take. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I don't know. I, you know, Serling often, what I loved about the original series, and I'll wrap it up here, but I'll just say, like, Serling used the Twilight Zone to talk about things that concerned him. It was a way to talk about what was going on in the 60s. It was a way to talk about civil rights, about racism, about inequality, um, about bigotry. Like, you know, and there are episodes of his series that are also very powerful and dark, but there's a brilliance to them. There's a subtlety to it. Uh, I feel like the Landis sequence is trying way too hard. And I think that's why it, it doesn't quite sit well with me. Um, but on the other hand, Joe Dante's It's a Good Life and especially Nightmare 20,000 Feet. I feel it's tour de force filmmaking. Everybody, all the actors are wonderful. And I feel like the last two segments really make this movie mm-hmm. worthwhile. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So. Agreed. Do you have any other final thoughts? I don't. Um, I've always wanted there to be another Twilight Zone movie just because I love, I love the Twilight Zone so much. I, what's interesting is this film, it was kind of a mid-range. It wasn't a huge hit. It wasn't a flop. It was kind of right in the middle, which Hollywood studios hate when that happens. But it did inspire a lot of, of spinoff concepts. Like for one thing, Spielberg did his own Twilight Zone. He did a series called Amazing Stories, which I quite like, although it was very hit and miss. Twilight Zone came back to TV two years later, uh, the 80s version of the Twilight Zone, which I love. There's a lot of gems uh, in that series. The Tower of Terror. And of course, the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At Disney World. Disneyland. When visiting Disney Parks, make sure you check out the Twilight Zone <laughs> Tower of Terror. Not sponsored. They're not sponsoring this podcast. They are not sponsored. They do not know or care about this podcast. But yeah, we do. We've been on that a few times. So much fun. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, <laughs> I have no other thoughts. So about greatest Twilight Zone episodes, I'd say Walking Distance. Uh, yeah, Walking Distance. And um, I Have the Beholder. Uh, Time Enough at Last. The original Nightmare, 20,000 Feet. And uh, The Jungle. That's a scary episode. Yeah. Good mm-hmm. episodes. All right. Classic syrup. Well, that concludes our episode of Twilight Zone, the movie.